Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long forgotten murders all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is the concluding part of the murder of Nora Upchurch. A West End prostitute who was found strangled in a locked and empty shop by Frederick Field. A local handyman whose detailed description of her supposed killer ultimately led the police to their chief suspect himself. Murder Mile contains grisly descriptions which may offend, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 19, Nora Upchurch and her lonely death in the empty shop, part two. On Tuesday the 25th of July, 1933, at 12.30pm, in Shoe Lane, a tightly cobblestoned road just off Fleet Street, which is the supposed workplace of the bloody barber, Sweeney Todd, but is more famously the home of many of Britain's worst tabloid hacks, who'd happily slit their own mother's throat, spill their granny's guts, and package up the entrails into a steamy festering pie, simply to lure their easily duped readers into swallowing great mouthfuls of unfettered bullshit. Here, a man paced nervously, back and forth, his black scuffed shoes almost wearing a hole in the pavement the rough calloused fingers of his trembling hands, shaking as he chain-smoked another cigarette. And although he didn't look like a journalist, being just five foot seven inches tall, ten stone in weight, with odd little elf-like ears, hollow brown eyes, a large bulbous nose, ruffled brown hair, and was dressed in a tatty dark suit, He looked out of place among the throng of typists, scribblers and fingersmiths, and more at home on a building site, a factory, or renovating an empty shop. And yet the deep dark secret he had held on to for almost two years 
would be front-page news for weeks to come. With a deep breath and a determined nod, the man stubbed out his cigarette, turned on his heels, and having made a life-changing decision which would ultimately lead to his grisly death, he walked into the London offices of the right-wing tabloid newspaper, The Daily Sketch, and asked for Mr Lever, a senior reporter he had met just two years before, when the nervous man was the principal witness in the unsolved murder trial of a 20-year-old West End prostitute who had died in the dark passage of an empty shop. Tentatively greeting the nervous man with a vague smile and a distant handshake, senior reporter Mr Lever inquired, So tell me, what's this all about? To which the man gulped, his saliva unable to swallow back the words, which for so long had been stuck in his throat, and muttered, Well, I did it. Mr Lever's eyes widened, an eyebrow raised, with a nervous grin which crinkled the sides of his mouth, and casually asked, You mean, you killed Nora Upchurch? The man replied, Yes. His name was Frederick Field. And three years later, he would be dead. Born on the 16th of April 1904, in Acton, West London, just three miles from the childhood home of Nora Upchurch. Although poor, Frederick Herbert Charles Field was a spoiled brat and a habitual liar, who was born to a strict disciplinarian father, who ruled his brood with an iron rod, a drunken fist and an ever-thrashing leather belt, and a molly-coddling mother, whose son, in her eyes, was a blameless angel. With mixed signals dominating his young life, Field grew up courting trouble, openly lying, and always believing that, no matter how bad he was, he would always be protected. Being disinterested and distracted, Field left school age 14, with few qualifications. He drifted in and out of various menial jobs, until 1926, when aged just 22, his father forced his son to enlist as an aircraftsman in the Royal Air Force which he did for three whole years. But on the 7th of April 1929, having married his sweetheart, Bessie Matilda, Field was discharged from the Air Force for an unspecified offence, and once again drifted between jobs, pubs, pawn shops, bookies and brothels. By 1931, the year that Nora Upchurch was murdered, with Field now being the father to a newborn baby daughter, and finally holding down a semi-regular job as a sign fixer at Hilder & Co. in Soho. Money was tight, tempers were frayed, and their marital bed was icy cold. Not because of the baby, but because of the very simple reason that at the inquest into the murder of Nora Upchurch, Frederick Field wasn't just their star witness, he was also 
a suspect. On Friday the 20th of July, 1933, five days prior to his confession, Field had lost his employment with Hilder and Co. And he was hungry, desperate and broke. But it wasn't the shame, the guilt, or even the horror at having strangled Nora to death and having deprived her three-year-old daughter of a mother, which had driven him to confess. It was money and fame. Before he would talk, Field demanded full payment up front, his family's safety assured, a front page spread with his photo, and the daily sketch to fully fund his legal defence. When Mr Lever said no, he wanted to hear the story first. After a whole second of thought, Field cracked and began to spill every sordid detail. At 10.30pm that evening, at the Marlborough Street Police Station, Frederick Field made a full confession to Superintendent George Cornish. It went roughly like this. On Tuesday the 29th of September 1931, at exactly 1.40pm, Field left Hilder & Co. at 23 Great Pulteney Street to remove the two let signs from 173 to 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, having collected the keys of Miss Keenan at Perrion Ball first. We know this as a fact. At 2pm, having handed the only set of keys to the premises, to an unidentified man in a plus four suit, who had duped him using a false work order, and lured him with the offer of future employment, they agreed to meet later that evening. Only Field can verify this as a fact, as neither the plus four's man nor the keys were ever seen again. At 5pm that evening, Field headed home to 148 Clencham Lane in Sutton, South London. His squalid basement flat which he shared with his wife, baby daughter, brother-in-law and mother. Arriving at roughly 6.30pm. With very little time to spare, Field ate his dinner, washed and dressed in his best suit. Leaving home at 7.30pm, Field arrived at Piccadilly Circus tube station by 9pm for his ill-fated meeting with the Plus Fours man, who oddly had forgotten the keys to 177 Shaftesbury Avenue. And although he promised to return in just 10 minutes, having handed Field £2, which is roughly £140 in today's money, for materials to start the job, Field waited for him in the St. James's Tavern on the corner of Great Windmill Street and Denham Street. But strangely, he never returned. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now, whether we choose to believe Field's story about the plus fours man is irrelevant. As even if every word of his confession so far is a complete and utter lie, it is vital to excavating the truth. As it is right here, from this point onwards, that Fields takes us closer to what may actually have happened that night. So take a deep breath, and let's begin. Dressed in his best suit for a meeting which didn't happen, and being at a loose end, Field dawdled around the West End for an hour until at 12.25pm, as he was strolling down Bear Street, a side street just off Leicester Square, he was beckoned forth by a petite, pretty brunette with bobbed hair, who was soliciting for sex. She wore a green two-piece suit, black gloves, stockings and shoes, a black leather handbag, a green felt hat and a green felt belt. They had never met before, and he never asked her her name. But this was Nora Upchurch. Having procured sex worker services many times before, Field bartered briefly with Nora outside of Number 7 Bear Street and invited her back to his place at 177 Shaftesbury Avenue. Unlocking the glass-fronted, dark wooden door with his keys, Field escorted Nora along the dark-lit passageway, past the partition wall, and turned right into the back room of the empty shop. Being pitch black and barely illuminated by the streetlights outside, with no bed, sofa, sheets, or soft furnishings of any kind, Field asked Nora to lay down on the cold stone floor. Rightly, Not wanting to ruin her pretty dress, dirty her hair, or scuff her black-heeled shoes, Nora said no, which left them at a bit of a sexual impasse. Field inquired, Well, what are you going to do then? To which Nora, not wanting to pat up a few pounds and thinking on her feet, placed a few scattered pages of newspaper on the floor, and dropping to her knees, in her best East End slang, she said, I'm going to gam you, and she proceeded to fillet his floppy penis. According to his own confession, he didn't want a blowjob, and he didn't ask for a blowjob. In fact, he didn't want sex with Nora at all. But during the sex act, 
with the frustrated field standing upright and Nora on her knees. Her green felt hat bobbing back and forth like a circus seal performing for fish. Field stated that Nora, whether accidentally, sexually or maliciously, she bit his penis, sinking her teeth into his wrinkled gnarly knob, scraping his fleshy shaft and drawing blood. Of course, by the time of this confession, a full month later, those teeth marks on his bloodied manhood had healed. But that evening, in the pitch-black back room of 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, as he stood over Nora, Field saw red. Not just on her lips, not just on his penis, but in his eyes. And as his rage grew, in his right hand, he gripped Nora around the throat, squeezing tightly, trapping her airway, until a few seconds later, her body went limp and she slumped to the floor. In Fields' own words, he would state, I knew something was seriously wrong when she fell back. I lost control of myself. I can't remember exactly what happened afterwards. But then again, the crime scene evidence tells us exactly what happened next. As lying unconscious on the floor, Field clawed at Nora's vests, shredding the slight material from her breast to her navel. And ripping apart her white silk jumper, he rolled it into a ball and forced the makeshift gag into her mouth, suffocating her as he gripped both ends of her green felt belt, strangling her until her body had stopped struggling, her legs had stopped twitching, her lungs had stopped breathing, and Nora Upchurch was dead. Before locking up and leaving her body lying in the cold empty shop for three days, Field states he took Nora's black leather handbag, which contained four one-pound notes, a set of keys, a small ring and a packet of French letters, which is slang for condoms. At Leicester Square tube station, he boarded the Northern Line train, taking it to the end of the line at Morden. He hopped on a bus to the Rose Hill Estate and into a dark hedge by the Sutton Bypass. He threw Nora's black handbag and the keys to the shop. Field arrived home at 11.45pm, as witnessed by his wife, Bessie. Over the next two days, Field returned to his regular work duties, as if nothing had happened. With no mention of the missing keys, the plus four's man, or the strangled body of Nora Upchurch. But on Thursday the 1st of October, just two days later, a plumber at Hilder & Co. called William Thomas Finley, who was assigned to fix a leaky pipe at 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, was struggling to find the keys. They weren't at Hilder & Co. They weren't returned to Perry and & Ball. And just two days before, both keys were signed for by Frederick Field, and both were currently missing. Which brings us right back to where this story began. 
As on Friday, the second of October, nineteen thirty-one, at roughly ten a.m., having been chastised by Miss Keenan at Perry and Ball for handing over the only set of keys to a mysterious man in a plus-four suit, who was holding a clearly falsified work order, Douglas W. L. Bartram, and his shamed workmate Frederick Field, using an iron hammer and a chisel. Forced entry at the rear of 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, planning to remove the two lead signs, to fix the leaky pipe, and await the arrival of a locksmith to secure the property. And it is at that very moment that Field, shaking, trembling, and frightened, discovered the body of Nora Upchurch. That was the confession of Frederick Field, as made on Tuesday, the twenty-fifth of July, nineteen thirty-three, at twelve thirty p.m., to Mr. Lever of the Daily Sketch, and later that evening to Superintendent George Cornish of the Marlborough Street Police Station, where Field was promptly cautioned and arrested, with his wife and baby daughter safely ensconced at her parents' home in Cardiff, South Wales. A full-page spread, and a photo of himself in almost every newspaper. The Daily Sketch covering his full legal defence, instructing Mr. Henry Flint as his solicitor, and having given a full confession detailing his crime, Frederick Herbert Charles Field was tried on the twentieth of September, nineteen thirty-three, at the Old Bailey, for the murder of twenty-year-old. Annie Louise Nora Upchurch. But can Frederick Field's confession to the Daily Sketch, or even the police, be trusted? At the original inquest into the murder of Nora Upchurch on Thursday, the nineteenth of November, nineteen thirty-one. At which Field was both the star witness and a prime suspect, Coroner Mr. Ingleby Oddie, upon hearing Field's baffling statement about the missing keys, the plus fours man, and his shocking discovery of Nora's body, Mr. Oddie made it clear to the jury that they were entitled to either accept his evidence as fact, or not, stating. You might express disbelief in his story, but at the same time, you might as well record a verdict against some person or persons unknown. And presented with no concrete evidence, the jury did as they were told, which is why they declared the murder of Nora Upchurch as unsolved. Hidden behind is eyewitness accounts, court testimony. Police statements and even a confession, which was a heady mix of provable facts, half truths, and outright lies, was the arrogance of a man who, since birth, believed he could do as he pleased and could get away with it, whether spinning an elaborate lie, leading the police across London on a wild goose chase, as he thumbed through the police crime index and pointed the finger of guilt at Peter Webb. An innocent man, wrongly arrested at Richmond Police Station, and all the while 
at the inquest into Nora's tragic death, feeling that he was the smartest man in the room. Later stating, I was pitting my brains against the coroner and the police, and I won. As with arrogant relish, he added, One thing that annoyed me all the time is the realisation that although I committed the murder and got away with it, the people I wanted to prove this to didn't know it. But they do now. Never once showing an ounce of remorse for the murder, for Nora, or her now orphaned child, Marjorie. The Metropolitan Police first suspected Field on the day that Nora's body was found. As so rare is this occurrence, that anyone who finds a corpse is instantly the prime suspect. But also because, having met this mysterious plus-fours man for just ten minutes, a full three days later, and after the emotional shock of having discovered a dead body, Field gave the police a remarkably detailed description of this man, stating that he was aged about 30, 6 foot 1 inches tall, tan complexion, mousy hair cropped short at the back and sides, with a mousy coloured thin moustache with a gap in the middle, a gold tooth in his upper right jaw, Uh, he was of medium build with square shoulders, was well spoken and was dressed in a biscuit or beige coloured plus 4 suit with a 2 inch square pattern. He wore a gingery brown tweed cap and a gold watch on a leather strap on his left wrist and he looked like a well-to-do man who was uh, a native of London. And yet, just days later, when Field was volunteering his spare time to patrol the West End with the police to find this madman, his description had been refined to age 22, 6 foot 3, medium complexion, greyish-brown eyes, uh, light-brown hair, rather long face, broad shoulders, and he was dressed in a dark grey lounge suit with a double-breasted waistcoat. An almost entirely different man, with no reference to his gold tooth, gold watch, gingery cap, and no plus-fours suit. But then again, The inconsistencies in the first two statements made by Frederick Field to the police paled into insignificance when you unravel the truth and lies hidden within Field's own confession. If you're ready, let's attack each of them in chronological order. On Tuesday the 29th of September 1931, the day of Nora's murder, Field was assigned by Hilda and Co. to remove the two let signs from the exterior of 177 Shaftesbury Avenue. And yet, why is it that three days later, on the day that Nora's body was discovered, clearly visible on the police crime scene photos, on the outside of the empty shop, were the two let signs. A simple job that he had attempted to do twice. That day, 
having met the mysterious Plus Fours man inside 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, in broad daylight, during which they'd briefly discussed the future lighting layout for the shop, why would Field, who was a trained electrician, choose to meet a prospective client at night in a dark building with no lights? And why, at 9.20pm, having waited 20 minutes for the forgetful Plus Fours man, did Field over the next hour, during which he was at a loose end, why did he not go back to 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, where he knew the Plus Fours man had gone to get the keys for, and would eventually arrive? Given that the Plus Fours man was Field's alibi for the missing keys, and that these keys were the only way that Nora's killer could have entered or exited the empty shop, why is his alibi so full of holes? Is he merely misremembering these details? Or is this a desperate lie he's making up on the spot? Which brings us to the night of the murder. At 10.25pm, Field states he met Nora Upchurch in Bear Street, just off Leicester Square, and having procured her services for sex, he invited her back to what he referred to as his place. And yet, on the first floor of Number 7 Bear Street, right where they had met, Nora had a rented flat, which she used to entertain her customers. So why would she go with him to Shaftesbury Avenue? Upon entering the empty shop at 177 Shaftesbury Avenue, Field states that he and Nora walked through the passageway and into the dark and dusty back room, where supposedly the sex act and her strangulation took place. But if the evidence shows us that they shared a cigarette by the doorway, and having strangled her in front of the glass-fronted door, Field then dragged her unconscious body by the legs ten feet up the passageway. Why would he make such an arbitrary change to the location of the murder, when there is no evidence of anyone or any assault in the back room? Field states that his impulse to kill was provoked when she had bitten his penis. A bizarre claim which is impossible to prove or refute, as by the time he had made this confession, these bite marks had supposedly healed. But then again, why would a professional prostitute, who had performed oral sex hundreds if not thousands of times before, why would she deliberately or accidentally injure his penis and draw blood? Having lashed out in anger, Field claims he strangled Nora with his right hand until she passed out. But why would he admit this when the autopsy clearly confirms that she was brutally garroted using her own green felt belt? And around her neck there were no finger marks. 
and yet having given a full confession to Mr Lever of the Daily Sketch, stating that, unlike his police statements before, that this time he was telling the truth, whilst he claims that the murder of Nora Upchurch was a crime of passion, Field, in the same confession, would claim that his motive was to attempt to pull off the perfect murder. To kill a stranger, like Nora Upchurch, have someone else blamed for the crime, like Peter Webb, and to get away with it. Now, ignoring the fact that a perfect murder is only committed if you don't confess to it, even if we accept this assertion that her murder was premeditated, why didn't Field bring a weapon with him, such as a rope, a knife or a kosh, rather than using Nora's own belt? And why, rather than relying on the bizarre story of the plus fours man as an alibi, a man who was never identified and probably never existed, why didn't Field simply return the keys to Perry and Ball, having first made a copy for himself? Not to mention the fact that neither the Daily Sketch nor the police could find Nora's handbag or the keys in the bushes by the Sutton Bypass where Field claims he had thrown them. Why is it that the day after the murder, Bessie, Field's wife, had seen Field place on the bedside dresser two pound in notes and a few coins in silver, even though he had told her he was broke and he wouldn't be paid until the following Saturday. Which brings us to the two most important inconsistencies in Field's confession. If Field gave the plus fours man the only set of keys to the empty shop, how did both he and Nora Upchurch unlock the glass-fronted door and enter 177 Shaftesbury Avenue. And that evening at 8pm, with Nora Upchurch having paid the rent on her first floor flat at number 7 Bear Street, and having purchased a four pack of condoms, leaving her with four £1 notes, how is it that Field knows the exact contents of her black leather handbag? which, just like the keys, were never found. Armed with Field's confession, on Wednesday the 29th of September 1933, Frederick Herbert Charles Field was tried at the Old Bailey on the capital charge of murdering Annie Louise Nora Upchurch in an empty shop on the 29th of September 1931. A crime which, if found guilty of both charges of murder and theft, and having been declared sane by a medical professional, would warrant a death sentence. Having fully confessed to his crimes, signed a statement to that effect, and having sworn on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, with the judge, the police prosecution, and his own defence fully funded by the Daily Sketch, 
all of whom readied themselves for his guilty plea, making the trial a mere formality which will be done and dusted before lunch. When Mr Justice Swift asked how the accused pleaded to the charge of murder, with a wry smile, Field replied, Not guilty. As gasps and shocked silences gripped the room, it was clear that, had Field admitted his guilt, that the evidence would be irrelevant. But having pleaded not guilty, the burden of proof in this trial was once again placed upon the police, their evidence of which was wholly circumstantial and based almost entirely on the confession of Fields himself, in a signed statement which even he admitted was a total fabrication, none of which could either be proved or disproved, and that having been accused of Nora's murder at the original inquest, Field said he had falsified his confession in order to use this moment to establish his innocence. With Mr Justice Swift readily admitting that this is a peculiar way of proving your innocence by saying that you are guilty, Field replied, It was the only way. And after a farcical trial, during which very little evidence was given, on the charge of murdering Nora Upchurch, Mr Justice Swift found Frederick Herbert Charles Field not guilty. Field was acquitted of all charges, and on that same day, he walked free from court stating to the assembled press, I am satisfied now that I have cleared my name. My future plans are indefinite, but I hope to start my life again without the finger of suspicion pointing at me. Field's wife, Bessie, remained in Cardiff with her daughter. She divorced Field a few years later. Unable to gain regular work from his old employer at Hilder & Co, Field re-enlisted in the Royal Air Force. But after a short stint, Field absconded from Hendon Aerodrome, having stolen four cheques. Two weeks later, on the 4th of April 1936, at 8 Elmhurst Gardens in Clapham, South London, a 48-year-old prostitute named Beatrice Vilner Sutton was robbed and found strangled in her bed. Although the culprit fully confessed to the crime, in a series of events unnervingly similar to the murder of Nora Upchurch, he later retracted his statement and pleaded not guilty. Only this time, Having disclosed in his confession a little too much information, which only the police would have known, or her killer, the accused was found guilty of her murder, and on the 30th of June 1936, he was executed by hanging at Wandsworth Prison. His name was Frederick Field. 
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to check out the Murder Mile website at murdermiletours.com. Find us on Twitter or Instagram. Or join the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group on Facebook. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Next week's episode is the bungling assassins of Alexander Litvinenko. Thank you, and sleep well. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.